0: Welcome to the Liberty Block. I'm Alu Axelman. I'm joined by my co-hosts Stephen Axelman and Ed Maslish. We have an awesome guest here today. It's Ian Hewitt. He's the General Counsel of Cornerstone, New Hampshire. Ian, welcome to the Liberty Block. Thank you very much for being with us.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Alu. It's, it's good to see you and nice to meet you both, Stephen and Ed.
0: Can you introduce our listeners to Cornerstone, New Hampshire and explain a little bit about what you guys do?
1: Yeah, Cornerstone is a New Hampshire based Christian advocacy group. And historically, New Hampshire, uh, we were focused at Cornerstone on legislative advocacy in the New Hampshire um, State House and and Senate and getting things signed by the governor. Uh, The position that I occupy as general counsel was created for me in large part to also do litigation on behalf of third parties. So I've represented churches, groups of churches, Uh, representing an individual right now in a free speech case. And so I do that in addition to, on the legislative side, helping legislators with bills and doing traditional lobbying sorts of activities.
0: Awesome. And right now, what are you guys focusing on on the legislative side that I'm sure you're involved in a little bit? What are the big bills that you guys are supporting or opposing in New Hampshire at the moment? Well, let me just tell you the number one thing I'm probably most
1: excited about this week is we know that House Bill 440, which is also uh, endorsed by Reopen New Hampshire, but we've been very active in promoting it, the Civil Liberties Defense Act, that has been now administratively signed by the President of the Senate, and it's on its way now to the governor's desk, uh, at which point the governor will then have five days to uh, either Let it become law, sign it, or veto it.
0: Excellent. I know a little bit about it, but can you explain what the Civil Liberties Defense Act does during a state of emergency? Even with a state of emergency still, some civil liberties can't be violated? So uh, what
1: a lot of people get wrong about this issue is people look at what Sununu, our governor of New Hampshire, actually did, and they say, well, look, what Governor Sununu did clearly you know, was not comparable to what Whitmer did or what Bashir did in Kentucky. This wasn't New York or California. You know, he didn't, he didn't overreach to that extent. But there are two separate questions. There's how you actually use the powers And then there's the question of what our emergency powers laws in New Hampshire allow you to do. And in the latter category, in terms of what a governor is allowed to do in New Hampshire, the governor of New Hampshire has some of the most expansive emergency powers anywhere in the country. Our state courts have interpreted our state emergency powers laws to say that the government may suspend constitutional rights which means a governor could theoretically suspend or another executive in a state of emergency could suspend free speech, the right to travel, trial by jury, the Second Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, you name it, the the federal or the state equivalent. And if you brought any challenge in court to any of those actions by the government, the court would simply ask, is the action by the governor factually connected factually and honestly connected to the state of emergency? And if so, your suit would simply be dismissed. And this kind of theory upholds virtually any abusive government action you can think of. Uh, A great example of this is Korematsu. Korematsu was done under a suspension of constitutional rights theory. So it's important that we clarify our state emergency powers statutes in New Hampshire to say that they do not purport to authorize the governor to suspend civil liberties in a state of emergency. And in fact, the, the legislature says that the governor cannot do this. That will be what we've achieved if we get 440 signed into law or, or if it's allowed to become
0: law. So currently the law, there's no limit on the constitutional natural rights that the governor in a state of emergency can violate. In in a
1: state of emergency, the what you may be familiar from Ed with, uh, you know, standard tiers of judicial review. Depending upon the right, there's a different tier of judicial review. Uh, you know, serious core fundamental rights like free speech are typically subject to strict scrutiny. So the government's action, if it's going to survive uh, judicial scrutiny, it needs to be narrowly tailored to a compelling government interest. Um, some other kinds of rights are subject to intermediate scrutiny under a suspension theory, which is what our state courts have said, is current New Hampshire emergency powers law. When you have a state of emergency, the court does none of that, does none of the standard tiers of judicial review. All it asks is, is the action by the governor connected, honestly, to the state of emergency? And basically anything, the governor, you know, you, the governor could say, for instance, we don't want any journalists reporting upon this emergency because that's only going to gin up more panic. And so I'm, I'm prohibiting all media coverage of you name it, whatever the current state of emergency is. And clearly a court would say this is uh, in good faith factually connected to the state of emergency and our inquiry ends there. Your case is dismissed. Goodbye. So in effect, There's no constitutional rights whatsoever in a state of emergency under current New Hampshire emergency powers law as understood by our state courts.
2: Can I interject a question? Please. Has anyone ever challenged the validity of the emergency powers statutes under Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution, of the federal Constitution, which which guarantees every state a Republican
1: form of government? That's a, that's a very good question. Um, the most, most of the language that I'm referencing came from the Binford Superior Court case, which has been cited in, in numerous subsequent Superior Court cases and also cited by the governor in some of his subsequent emergency orders. Uh, Binford was based on an 11th Circuit case um, called Avino um, from, I think, the early 90s. And the superior court used Avino to interpret our current emergency power statutes in New Hampshire. Avino, incidentally, was explicitly based on Korematsu. If you go and look at Avino, but in the Binford case, the the petitioner in that case, who was a state representative, actually, um, if you look at the the complaint, it it looks like clearly it was drafted kind of basically overnight. Um, but it was a, an, an emergency petition. But they they. More or less listed every kind of cause of action you could think of. I don't recall specifically if they listed Republican form of government, but uh, clearly the the attorney who brought the case was thinking, I'm just going to list everything under the sun here and kind of see what sticks. Um, and the court said, you know, in a state of emergency, you don't even have these rights. They are suspended. So that's so scary. The, the inquiry ends there. Yeah. And we can see when the state Senate, to their credit, uh, passed House Bill 440, the Civil Liberties Defense Act, and every Republican voted for it. So, you know, they they really deserve our commendation for that. This was initially a quite controversial bill and eventually every state Senate Republican got behind it. Um, Senator Sharon Carson gave a great uh, floor speech in favor of the bill where she pointed out correctly that this theory of suspension of civil liberties is exactly what was used to uphold Japanese internment under FDR. So that shows you the kinds of things that the government can get away with if your constitutional rights can be suspended. And the answer to that is basically anything. Many other states, by the way, have not done this. So lots of other states around the country, the courts rejected the idea of suspending constitutional rights. They said it's still normal constitutional analysis. And we're just going to uphold what the government is doing with these you know, lockdown measures and things as passing normal constitutional scrutiny. Now, you and I may disagree with some of those cases, but that's very different than saying you don't even have these constitutional rights right now because of the emergency. So we're not even going to do the analysis. That's what gets you outcomes like
0: Korematsu. And, and do people who know the experts in this area, do they think Sununu is going to sign it or veto it?
1: I think that the general consensus is that he is unlikely to veto it. We at at Cornerstone, we have been encouraging people, and this is controversial among some people on our side, but we've been encouraging people to, when they contact Sununu about this, to thank him for being more restrained than many other governors were, which, you know, like Sununu or not, it's a fact. He was more restrained in his emergency powers use than lots of other governors, and to thank him in advance for protecting us from his successors and their subordinates. Because if, you know, someone like Senator, State Senator Sherman were to become governor, uh, you know, he's already said he would consider implementing a mask mandate on day one. Um, You know, we're not always going to have Christian Nguyen as governor. It it likely, there likely is going to be someone in the future who wants to Kind of more expansively and intrusively use these emergency powers. So, we think that that people, as they're contacting Snunu in the next few days, should um, you know be contacting him and saying thank you in advance for doing this and thank you for what you've done. People who are not big fans of the governor has criticized us for that, but uh, you know at, at this stage we there's just no reason to risk uh, alienating him, especially when. The evils that we're seeking to prevent with this bill are really not the emergency measures that Governor Sununu implemented, but potential future far more expansive and intrusive
3: emergency measures. Yeah, I'm gonna ask a question. I know we're gonna slightly distract you from maybe the main questions here, but how does this happen that a law like this ever gets passed giving up so much? Is it just that people have no idea what's going on? Legislators don't care. How do they ever give a Do, you, do you know when,
0: when the bill was passed to give the governor emergency powers in New Hampshire?
3: Yeah, these emergency power
1: statutes, uh, there's two of them. I think it's 445 and 447. Those are the RSAs. I think they're from the early 2000s, um, like 9-11 era. Yeah. Not I'm not 100% sure on that, maybe 90% sure. I've heard it was
0: right after 9-11 where they panicked and said, um, so actually the governor of New Hampshire, I think, was actually went, was in New York City and kind of got trapped for a while. And, and there were there were no emergency powers and, and the, the government couldn't do anything for a while in New Hampshire and they panicked and, and the legislature passed the bill right after 9-11, giving the governor tremendously broad and powerful emergency powers right after 9-11. And then in fact, in the testimony, I think that Ed and, and all of us were in that testimony, my dad and Ed and a few others, um, for HCR2 to end the state of emergency, I believe. Um, one of the people testifying on that bill to end the state of emergency was the sponsor of that bill that became law to give the governor emergency powers. And even he said, Whoa, I never wanted the governor to be a dictator for, for indefinitely.
1: Right. I don't think that the legislature did intend this. Um, you know, there's two kind of what are sometimes called constitutional meta questions. There is one, does the government even have an enumerated power to allow it to do such and such. Um, and then two, uh, is there some enumerated right that prohibits the government from doing a specific thing? And I think that in essence, what the legislature of New Hampshire was trying to do is take the kind of general police powers that the legislature has and convey to the governor during a state of emergency, broad enumerated powers, basically unlimited enumerated powers during a state of emergency so that there's always some sort of basis for him to do anything that he, he wants while an emergency is going on. But what I don't think they intended to do is to go a step further and say, also, constitutional rights can be suspended during the state of emergency. That is not actually in the statute, but it is current New Hampshire emergency powers law because our state courts used this Avino decision from the 11th Circuit, which it was a non-binding law on us before. Um, again, based on Korematsu, which which is an overturned decision, and uh, used Avino to interpret RSA 445 and 47, our state emergency powers laws. Um, So the the, uh, uh, legislative findings by the House, these were not included in the Senate version, but the initial legislative findings by the House for uh, this bill, the Civil Liberties Defense Act, HB 440, they said specifically the legislature did not ever intend to give the governor or any executive the power to suspend constitutional rights. And if anyone, by the way, wants to dig into this a little bit more and see the original sources, um, if you go to bit.ly slash NHLiberties, capital NH, Liberties, uh, you can see our cornerstones page with kind of general resources uh, on the Civil Liberties
0: Defense Act and, and links about it. Excellent. Anyone else have questions? So what are some other big bills that you guys are supporting or opposing this year, this session?
1: Well, one thing that's going to happen on Thursday is there's going to be a vote on literally this coming Thursday on whether the House is going to adopt a House finance amendment to a bill called House Bill 1609. Um, or, and then hear that House amendment, um, or whether the House is going to hear the original text of House Bill 1609. Now, House Bill 1609 is functionally identical to something Massachusetts passed in December of 2020 called the Roe Act, which authorized completely unlimited abortion up to birth by creating open-ended exceptions and stripping out enforcement mechanisms. Uh, House Bill 1609, the original text as introduced Introduced by the way by a handful of Republicans, it does exactly the same thing in a functionally identical way. It strips out a key enforcement mechanism and it creates these open ended uh, exceptions. Now, the House Finance Committee has proposed a much more moderate amendment uh, that would replace everything in 1609. Cornerstone actually is neutral and does not take a position on the House Finance Amendment itself on whether the House should pass the bills amended by House Finance. But uh, we have been strongly, of course, encouraging reps to, in the initial vote, vote to amend 1609 and replace it with that more moderate House Finance language. That way, this original gutting bill, uh, which authorizes uh, completely unlimited abortion up to the moment of birth for any or no reason at all, uh, ensure that that does not come to the House floor to be heard. And that should be a no-brainer for Republicans of, of really multiple persuasions, uh, except for people, of course, who are very ideologically committed pro-abortion extremists.
0: And to give some background, last year, for the first time ever, to my knowledge, New Hampshire legislature passed a law prohibiting abortion after 24 weeks. Um, and then right away, obviously, the next day, uh, the the pro-choice, pro-abortion Democrats and a few Republicans... Um, started crafting legislation to, to repeal it, but also to just gut out the enforcing mechanism of that 24-week abortion restriction. Can you explain why the ultrasound? Because I think it was you or someone else who had to explain to me why it's so important if the ultrasound requirement is repealed, the whole bill doesn't exist, the law doesn't exist anymore because you can't enforce it. Right. So New Hampshire, actually, not only
1: was this a first for New Hampshire, but New Hampshire became the first state anywhere in the United States to go from allowing unlimited abortion up to birth to passing a late term abortion ban, uh, which is why groups like Planned Parenthood, Amplify New Hampshire, et cetera, have freaked out so much and they have poured millions of dollars into the state to try to repeal this law is because, of as we all know, if you're on the culturally progressive side of things, you think that history must only move in one direction. And if history ever moves in the other direction, it's an abomination and everyone has to go into freak freakout mode. And that's what they did. Um, House Bill 1609, it, it guts the that late-term abortion ban in two ways. So one is to remove entirely the very limited ultrasound requirement that's in the, the current law. And the other is to create This completely open-ended health exception that would basically make the provider performing the abortion completely the final word on when abortions could occur. Uh, He could choose to do the abortion for mental reasons, economic reasons, social reasons. So either of those changes by itself would totally gut the Fetal Life Protection Act. Now, the the ultrasound removal, and it's important to note, Alu, you pointed out there have been many bills that have come up to try to destroy this six-month abortion ban, and they've, they've kind of proceeded in different ways. Um, so we just heard a bill, 1673, that was narrowly defeated in the House. Um, what that would have done is just very straightforwardly taken out all the criminal penalties, taken out all of the civil penalties. What 1609 does is it also strips out the enforcement mechanism, but in a different way. Uh, it strips out entirely the ultrasound requirement. Now, the ultrasound requirement is extremely limited. It's one of the most modest ultrasound requirements in the country. The sole purpose of it is to determine the gestational age of the child um, and make sure prior to any abortion that that child is not six months or older. It's not some sort of mechanism to show the woman uh, the ultrasound or anything like that and try to deter her from getting an abortion. It's purely an enforcement mechanism to determine the gestational age of the fetus, and it only kicks in in very limited circumstances. The already under current law the abortion provider only even needs to do this ultrasound if he knows of a substantial risk that the child is six months or older. So if, if you've got like an eight-week abortion or something, you're not even legally required to do the ultrasound. But the reason it's it's critical is it's like having a speed gun to enforce a speed limit. If we were to have a 70-mile-per-hour speed limit in New Hampshire, but let's say we passed a law that anyone who wants can opt out of being clocked with radar guns. And so, you know, when the the cop clocks you with a radar gun, that's not admissible in court now because you've opted out. The fact is that we have no speed limit. You're never going to be convicted of driving over 70 miles an hour. It doesn't matter if we nominally leave the 70 miles per hour in place. And so that's why we see these groups trying to entirely remove that already extremely narrow, Um, An unintrusive ultrasound requirement is because they want to remove any enforcement mechanism
0: from the law. Excellent explanation. So, I think what New York State passed uh, a year or two ago, and I think I wrote an article about it, is they passed a law essentially legalizing abortion up until birth, but only if there's a medical issue. And I looked at the bill and it said, what, you know, the definitions of medical issue, and it said, if there's any possibility of the mother or baby having any health issue or risk of any health issue whatsoever. Um, right. at all. And, right. and a health, you know, any health issue or event or whatever the language was literally could mean anything, including tachycardia, which means a heart rate over hundred. Right. So it literally is a 100% expansive, broad legalization of any justification for abortion up until birth. But, in the, but technically if you read the bill quickly, it says only if there's a health issue, but it, it's essentially says anything in the world can qualify as a health issue.
1: Well, also because of reasons of constitutional avoidance that is our courts prefer to interpret statutes in a way that avoids constitutional issues Um, and also there's a doctrine called void for vagueness where if you're vague in a criminal statute the courts don't like that because it doesn't give people proper notice of what the law is which is no good Um, for those two reasons together the courts have consistently said if you have a, a criminal prohibition on abortion and it has an undefined health exception that just says the word health, the courts will interpret that to mean anything. So it could be social, economic, uh, family considerations, whatever that means. The U.S. Supreme Court said this explicitly in Doe against Bolton. The undefined word health means uh, anything. It just makes the, the provider performing the abortion the final word on when abortions can occur. And I'm glad you brought up New York because New York, uh, you're exactly right. It was a couple years ago, from 2019 to 2020, all of the the three states that had six month abortion bans all legalized abortion up to birth. Because it's just just within the last few years, um, you know, it used it used to be that you were allowed to be a Democrat and be moderate on this issue, but very rapidly. The the Democrats have required of their their rank and file in the state legislatures, if you're a Democrat, you must support totally unlimited abortion up to the moment of birth, period, or you're not a Democrat. We're going to kick you out. And so three states that had moderate six-month abortion bans, Massachusetts, New York, and Nevada, all repealed these from just 2019 to 2020. So if you go back even just a few years before 2019, all three of those blue states Um, had six-month abortion bans. Massachusetts had a felony six-month abortion ban. Um, So did Nevada. And and basically, these states have all done the same thing, which is they've passed gutting bills that leave some sort of joke nominal remnant of the text in place. But they strip out enforcement mechanisms, they strip out penalties, they create open-ended exceptions. And uh, in effect, they authorize unlimited abortion up to birth while concealing their actions from voters, which is what uh, the original text of House Bill 1609 is designed to do. Perfect.
3: Um, Quick comment. So you're a Christian conservative organization, and the first subject we spoke about, you have the backing of the libertarians, I would assume. The abortion subject is quite more complicated, and you probably lose a lot of that backing, right?
1: Not in the state legislature. Um, I'm a libertarian. You know, libertarians uh, have are kind of divided among themselves on this issue. Uh, You know, it it depends upon some, how you answer certain philosophical questions that aren't necessarily built into the definition of libertarian, you know, which I would just say is you support the maximum decentralization of, of political power on any given issue. Um, and you, but you know, the, the, there are philosophical questions of personhood that different people are going to answer differently, um, within, within the umbrella of people who self-identify as libertarians in our state house though, it's, it's pretty straightforward, actually pretty much all of the representatives who either self-identify as libertarian or who are typically self-identified by others as libertarian. Um, because we have, we have many state reps in New Hampshire who are, who vote with a pretty libertarian record, but are hesitant to be described um, by others as libertarian. Um, if you take all of those people, pretty much all of them, except except one that I can think of, uh, has consistently voted to support the six-month abortion prohibition. And the, the one exception that I can think of also voted to allow abortion clinics to prohibit nonviolent uh speech protesting and sidewalk counseling outside of abortion clinics so this this is someone who even though they like to to pass themselves off as being very liberty oriented is evidently fine with the government suppressing the speech of people who disagree with him on this one issue so really yeah. i think that the consistent libertarians um are are aligned uh with the the law as it stands in new hampshire
0: well, in my experience, the libertarians in New Hampshire and broadly throughout the United States are kind of 50-50 on abortion, depending on exactly the issue and exactly the type of people. But libertarians are kind of split. In New Hampshire, it's, I would say it's 50-50. Um, but you're right. Legislature, yes. the Most libertarians in the legislature, you know, all of them run as Republicans, and a lot of them are, are pro-life. Now, there are a few Republicans, depending on the exact issue, for abortion. Five, 10, 20 Republicans vote with Democrats on abortion. That's not because they're so libertarian. It's actually because they're so Rhino central. Yeah, left, right? those, those, those people are
1: not libertarians. Yeah, they're all they're basically establishment New England okay. Republicans. Yeah, and and I it's funny we when Cornerstone sometimes will post about you know Republicans in New Hampshire voting against the. Uh, six-month abortion ban. But, you know, we'll get comments from people saying, "Oh, it must be those free staters. It must be those libertarians." And it it just is not. It's it's, it's the binders, New, right? New England establishment Republicans. Yeah.
3: So I guess I'll stop sending in those comments. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I don't think they were from you, but uh, yes, you should.
3: Yeah, you don't need to send in the
0: comments. The free staters and libertarians are getting attacked enough because we're winning so much. So we are being attacked a lot. They just sent out forty thousand mailers attacking and you, free staters, apparently. Oh, I, I think I saw you post about this.
1: Yeah. And, you know, also, Alu, it, it helps that this is a six month abortion prohibition. You know, the, the Roe v. Wade itself, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, these cases talked about how uh, the state does have a legitimate interest at some point in protecting the life of the fetus. And at a certain point, the court said in in Casey, you know, this was, I think, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor writing. So not exactly, you know, the, the most fanatically anti-abortion person under the sun, but said, it's reasonable to think that at a certain point, you've you've waived your right to have an abortion by not not having one up to this point. And I, I think that's something that a lot of people can agree on, at, at least within the Republican Party. Um, and it used to be until fairly recently that even many Democrats could agree with that. And if, in fact, if you look at the polling back in March of 2021, uh, when this bill was first being discussed the bill was doing fantastically in unh polls had a plurality of support in new hampshire and even 15% of registered democrats in new hampshire were in support of the bill now that the reason that things have gone downhill in terms of polling is largely because of the this multimillion dollar ad campaign And it has given people the impression that in New Hampshire right now, all abortion whatsoever is prohibited. You would be astonished at the number of people on the street in New Hampshire that think no abortion is allowed in New Hampshire, um, which is just not true. And, And representatives, state senators get emails all the time from people who think that all abortion has been prohibited in New Hampshire uh, which is why Cornerstone actually has, um, for example, bus shelter adds up in Manchester. I saying, saw
0: it in Manchester yeah. on Elm Street.
1: Right. Did you, know, did you know
0: that the law only prohibits abortion at six months? Right. Excellent. So we discussed some legislation. You said you're also currently doing litigation. As a lawyer, there are currently lawsuits that you're working on?
1: Right now, I'm, I've re- just received and I'm going through discovery that I've received um, from the Defendants in a case I'm litigating against the Exeter Cooperative School District in a free speech case. Um, In that case, my client was subject to athletic sanction for stating uh, on a school bus and later in a text message that there are only two genders and sexes.
0: How dare he? That sounds like an insurrectionist.
1: Uh, well, that's what the school district thought. And there's kind of, there's two issues at play. One is, you know, of course, whether the school can sanction him for the content of that speech. Um, he is a, a school athlete. He was athletically suspended. So that's going to come up. This The school district's going to try to argue that a different set of standards applies to athletes than regular students. Um, although there's a recent U.S. Supreme Court decision on a cheerleader that will be uh, at least pretty helpful to our, our side in that discussion. And then, of course, separately, there's the fact that um, a critical part of why this st- student was athletically suspended is he sent off-campus text messages from his private cell phone to another student's private cell phone, and none of this was uh, you know, within the purview of a school activity or, or was on the school campus or what have you. Um, that that cheerleader case I referenced, Mahanoi, was written by uh, Justice Breyer, who's now retiring, um, who of course is a a Democratic justice. And he had some very good language in the Mahanoy decision about how schools are not 24-7 in loco parentis. The school is not your parent. The school can't regulate all of your speech throughout the 24-hour day. Uh, And so for that reason, in the Mahanoy case, the U.S. Supreme Court held that this school was not able to regulate the private off-campus Snapchats of a a cheerleader, even though they were about her cheerleading team and her cheerleading coach.
0: But you said he also said this horrible
1: remark on the school bus? Right, that's right. He said it on a school bus and then he said it in a text message. So as I said, there's going to be two uh, distinct but interrelated issues of the the regulation of off-campus speech and then also the extent to which schools can prohibit certain disfavored speech by students, and, and if so, when.
0: So it's you officially as Cornerstone taking this case?
1: That's right. So in, in New Hampshire, the, the way this works is that a, a nonprofit organization like Cornerstone um, has this, this, the case deciding this, by the way, was written by a uh, former Supreme Court Justice Souter when he was on the New Hampshire Supreme Court before he went up to the US Supreme Court. A nonprofit organization like Cornerstone can uh, represent third parties um, in, in litigation. And je- you might think of, you know, I hate to use this example, but this is one everyone knows, the ACLU, for example, is, an, is a nonprofit, but the ACLU staff attorneys in court, they're not just representing the ACLU, they're representing other people. So I've represented churches, groups of churches. Um, you know, our focus has been on religious liberty and related issues. This is really both a a straight free speech and a religious liberty issue, Um, and we've brought the case under both our speech clause in New Hampshire and our free exercise clause in New Hampshire because the student expressed this position because it is the formal position of the Catholic Church. The student is a Catholic. The Catholic Church has said in its formal teachings, we reject any attempts to divorce gender from sex or to dilute the the binary nature of male and female sexuality. Um, And so the the student was articulating his, his beliefs
0: as a Catholic and was penalized for that reason. It's a very interesting case. Ed, what are your initial thoughts on this case?
2: I think it's a straightforward speech and religious liberty case. I think that it's a good case for the plaintiff. Did you also
1: make federal claims or is it limited to state claims? We intentionally did not make federal claims. We only made claims under the New Hampshire Constitution. And as you know, Ed, but for the benefit of our listeners, uh, in New Hampshire, our state Supreme Court has a very strong tradition of interpreting our state constitutional rights as more protective than our federal constitutional rights. So this is true on the Fourth Amendment. Cops have a higher Fourth Amendment burden in New Hampshire than they do in much of the rest of the country because of our state constitution. Um, In a a recent case, our state free exercise clause, uh, state against MAC, was interpreted by our state Supreme Court as being more protective of religious liberty than the federal free exercise clause, which is a great win for us. And the reason we see some of these results is if any of you have, and I'm sure you have, looked at the New Hampshire Constitution, uh, the New Hampshire State Bill of Rights is so much more emphatic in its language than the federal constitution. You know, the federal constitution is very just kind of terse the government shall not do such and such right whereas the new hampshire bill of rights says you know this right is essential to the integrity of a free state and shall be inviolably preserved and it just kind of has that tone uh, throughout and the same thing is true of our state free speech clause uh so the courts might not reach this question um we could, as you indicated, Ed, win without the courts reaching this question. But if if they do, if there's any ambiguity about whether my client uh, ought to and would win under federal uh, free speech or free exercise jurisprudence, we have another argument, which is that the court should interpret our state free speech clause as more protective than the federal free speech clause. And certainly, In New Hampshire, it is already established law under state against MAC that the state free exercise clause for religious liberty, that is more protective uh, of individual rights than the federal equivalent. So So you're officially suing the the
0: government school district?
1: Suing the Exeter Cooperative School District and suing the the vice principal um, in in her official and individual capacity currently. And initially, the, the school district put out a statement saying that uh, this is the this was the sole disi- playing decision of the individual football coach, which we dispute. We don't think the facts bear that out at all. But after they put that statement out, then we also added the football coach as a defendant. OK,
0: and what, what are their arguments going to be?
1: Well, uh, probably their, one of their top arguments is going to be this idea that a, someone involved in an extracurricular activity isn't subject to the same free speech jurisprudence as a regular student. The, the courts have been very clear under federal First Amendment law that students don't check their right to free speech at the schoolhouse gate. Um, you, the school can just regulate your speech because it disfavors it. But what they a potential opening for the school district to exploit is this idea that student athletes or people in the chess club or people in the debate club, uh, you have signed a code of conduct. You are a particular representative of the school. And so therefore, we, we don't need to jump through the same hoops to regulate your speech that we would with an ordinary student. Now the, the US Supreme condition,
2: court- can they condition first uh, giving up your constitutional rights and participating in a
1: extracurricular activity like that? Great question. Well, the it's funny that came up in the Mahanoi case. The justices asked the school district that exact question in those exact words, and the school district said no. <laughs> so, can you explain uh, the question, Ed? I don't.
0: Can you explain what you just said?
1: Well, it, what uh,
2: Ian was saying is that the that the students may have given up their rights. When they signed up a code a, I don't a, a, a think so. I'm just
1: saying what their argument right. might. The
2: be. argument would be right. The, the yep. argument would be that when they sign on to the code of conduct agreeing to you know be quiet and to follow orders or whatever the code of conduct says, that the, the school board is not uh, taking away their rights, they're just enforcing the code of conduct. So my question was, can the code of conduct condition make you give up your waive your constitutional rights as a condition of participating in the extracurricular activity?
1: Right. And then I mentioned in the Mahanoy cheerleader case, this was discussed and the, the answer uh, was emphatically from both sides was emphatically no. And Mahanoy, of course, that concerned a cheerleader. Um, and the, the district did try this argument that cheerleaders are unique representatives of the school district. Now, the, the angle here is the Mahanoy case did not explicitly address the issue of athletic codes of conduct. Um, and and whether those are different from general regulation of general student speech. But if signing on to some sort of code of conduct for an extracurricular waives your First Amendment rights, as as Ed is getting at, that is going to lead to a completely anomalous, bizarre result where the, the U.S. Supreme Court, its federal free speech jurisprudence emphatically says Students do not check their right to free speech at the schoolhouse gate unless you're a football player or you're a cheerleader or you're in chess club or you're on the debate club. If you do anything other than just show up to school and sit in your desk until the school bell rings, if you do any extracurriculars, your free speech rights are waived. And that's going to that if that kind of reasoning were followed, it would lead to millions of students having no, free speech rights, even though the US Supreme Court has been emphatic in saying that they do have these rights and do not waive them. Um, and certainly in New Hampshire, where, as I said, our state constitution is more protective of individual rights than the federal, this should be a no brainer. What's the
2: uh, extracurricular activity at issue in your case?
1: In my case, it's, it's football. My client is a football player.
2: Okay. So what what possible connection? I mean, unless you're talking about rational basis review, what connection, you know, what's the fit between football, you know, advancing football and
1: regulating whether you talk about two genders or not? I mean, right? I, obviously,
0: conduct—that's all.
1: Yeah, the you know, it's just a kind of a generic. Uh, you know, you agree to be respectful. We find this speech disrespectful. Therefore, we can discipline you. So we'll we'll see how it goes. Uh, it's going to continue to unfold, and I can keep you all updated
3: can i assume yeah. the football team is not single gendered
1: it is yeah it's a just
3: I'm a, not a biologist boys
1: football team i'm, I'm confused right. how am i supposed to answer that i'm not a biologist <laughs> No,
3: no I'm, I'm just confused because if you can't say there's only two genders then by what logic is the football right. team only one
1: sorry right well Well, uh, you know, Exeter, of course, has a very broad um, gender nonconforming students policy. And under its policy, you are assigned to the intramural or interscholastic uh, sports league of whatever gender you identify as. And so a biological female who, if for, for some reason she wanted to, which obviously she wouldn't, if a biological female wanted to identify as a male and play on the boys' football team, she absolutely would be able to do that um, theoretically under the Exeter Cooperative School District's policy. Um, now, there's there's questions of, you know, is she going to make the tryouts for the team? Uh, but obviously, if we reverse the, the biological sex there and we imagine a a biological male who wants to play on the, the women's football team. If, if there is such a thing in this case, then it, no brainer, um, you know, that individual would, would probably would no doubt kill tryouts and be able to play on that team. And I'm sure that the Exeter cooperative school district would be quite happy with that result.
0: I actually miss football a lot. I played in high school. I might move, move to Exeter and identify as a 15 year old girl and play on the girls football team if they have one. Um, I would do pretty well, got, you know, 20 touchdowns a year, 1,000 yards a season, and I would have fun.
1: Well, they don't have an age non-conforming students policy I identify yet, as a, I, a I'm, sure if, I'm sure
0: if you called up the school board, they could make accommodations for you. Excellent. So does anyone else have more questions about legislation or litigation, or we can move on to the to SCOTUS for a little bit? Because I know Ian wanted to talk about the SCOTUS and a few other stuff. We can move on. Excellent. Ian, what were we talking about about the Supreme Court? There were a few things recently. And then also, I think you said you, you disagreed with us in that you supported Roberts a lot more than everyone here does, I think. So I think I wanted to argue about that. Oh,
1: yeah, that's a that's always something fun to debate about. I mean, I'm, you know, I would have said to you a few months ago that I'm in the I'm the self-appointed president of the very small John Roberts fan club. But actually, it turns out it's not so small. If you look at if you survey the general public as to what Uh, you know, major government figures you find most trustworthy. Uh, John Roberts is, he's, I think, number one, he's either one or two, and he's the only major figure who's trusted by a majority of Republicans, independents, and Democrats. Um, So actually, it's not such a small fan club. It's just that in the, you know, the kind of supercharged polarized world of of especially online political discourse, uh, you know, neither side tends to like John Roberts, but just so I put the other conversation topic on the table and we, we can do whatever you want with it. Um, the, the other thing that you and I were discussing, Alu, is I read the entirety of a, the 200 page something um, re- report put out by Biden's Commission on the Court. Uh, this, this report came out late last year, and it's basically a blueprint, uh, a kind of an intellectual pseudo historical blueprint for future court packing um, which would involve arbitrarily expanding the size of the Supreme Court so that Democrats can take political control of it. This has never happened before in American history, never before has anyone successfully expanded the court in order to take political control of the court. Uh, My argument is that one, that would be functionally an abolition of our tripartite system of government that would create a binary form of government. Uh, there would not be a truly independent third branch in that case. And once that bell was rung, it couldn't be unrung. And secondly, I think having gone through the 200 page something report, I think the report really distorts history um, at at some point uh, in apparent bad faith to try to kind of lay a historical groundwork that would legitimize court packing. They try to give the idea of court packing far more historical precedent than it actually has. It really has none, and the idea is for either Biden or a future Democratic president to be able to do this. Um, and and were that to happen, we would, I think, functionally have no constitutional rights. Um, but
2: didn't the framers before Marbury versus Madison? I thought they were very clear that they did see it as a two, mostly a two-tier government or a two-part government. I mean, yes, you have a judiciary, but. I, Marbury versus Madison was a revolution to, to the framers who were still alive at that time, right? I mean, I think that they viewed Congress's power to enlarge the court, abolish the court, to do—you know—they don't have to be federal courts at all under the under the federal Constitution. And I think that that was intentional by the intentional in the design of the original Constitution.
1: No, you you would have to amend the Constitution to certainly abolish the court. The the first only three the Supreme years. Court. Only the Supreme Court. Only the Supreme Court, right.
2: The first. Right, if you look, the Supreme Court has very limited original jurisdiction,
1: right? And it they, has the power to decide cases arising under the Constitution, uh, which is given the number of things that are in the Constitution, including a lot of enumerated rights. That's pretty expansive jurisdiction. Um, the U.S. Supreme Court, you know, articles one through three. Each it's, it's not like we've got articles one and two, and then we've got a footnote establishing this Supreme Court thing. Articles one, two, and three each create separate branches of government and give them separate powers. One thing I incidentally agreed with the Biden's commission on the court on is now if judicial review was some sort of novel invention That would be to the Democrats' advantage to to broadcast that because the Democrats don't want to be able to have an independent judiciary that can enforce constitutional rights and check majoritarian acts by the legislature. So if it were true that judicial review is some sort of novelty made up out of whole cloth by John Marshall, the Democrats would want to tell us that. But in fact, Biden's commission on the court, they, they cannot avoid the fact that judicial review does have a really long history in the common law tradition. Um, and what if Marbury versus Madison, while it was, you know, John Marshall was playing politics and trying to expand um, and cement a greater ability for of the court to, to check, um, you know, what the kinds of things that Congress was doing. This wasn't a kind of out of whole cloth invention, there was a, a long historical tradition of judicial review. And I think a lot of Hostility among libertarians and on the right to this idea of judicial review and the US Supreme Court, um, you know, being able to check the power of majoritarian elected officials comes from this notion that the Supreme Court is always kind of uh, making law and acting as a quasi legislature. But I think the fact is that those, those cases that are of a kind of quasi legislative nature. We know about them because they're very exceptional. And the fact is that a lot of the time, the Supreme Court does uphold enumerated constitutional rights against the majoritarian elected government. Um, You know, if uh, the gun cases, for example, had been decided differently, if Heller and McDonald had been decided differently, Obama already could have started enacting total gun confiscation during the 111th Congress. Um, but those those cases, thank God, upheld an individual right to bear arms against the majority of the federal government at the time. Um, you know, Or Hosanna Tabor, 2012, under the Obama administration, the Obama administration DOJ wanted to be able to tell churches who to hire and fire. And the Roberts court said, no, under the free exercise clause, you can't do this. So I, I think that that some of the Kind of dynamic that characterizes these debates we have on the political right among libertarians or conservatives um, comes from people focusing more on the the uncharacteristic cases and not knowing enough about these cases where we've won and the court has has done its job and upheld federal constitutional rights. I think when you look at those cases, you can see how really essential it is to have an independent judiciary that can check the two elected branches.
2: Well, I wasn't debating the merits of judicial review. I was just saying I think I don't think the framers intended for judicial review, quite frankly. I don't think I don't think that was part of the original design. I understand that Marbury versus Madison is decided in 1803 and it's 219 years later and it's well established in the law. But I don't and and I certainly don't think that the Biden team Biden is trying to advance the cause of liberty in any direction whatsoever. So I'm well, not that's and certainly report. I'm not
1: saying that right yeah, I, I, like I, it, I I think their whole report was written to justify court packing but they tried to justify court packing by pointing to various changes to the court's size over time in American history they they did not dispute the concept of judicial review because it is so well established not just in American history but in pre-american common law history I, I guess the the two, primary, the two primary points I, I would make here are the pre-existing common law nature of judicial review and also Article 3, it says the power to decide cases arising under this Constitution. And Ed, I just don't know what that could possibly mean unless the government can tell, unless the Supreme Court can tell the elected political branches, you are not able to uh, criminalize this person's speech because of the First Amendment. I just think that I'm not like
2: I said, I'm not dis- disagreeing or debating the merits of judicial review of unconstitutional <clears throat> acts of the legislature. I'm just saying I don't think that they believed in it. And I think that their response to proposed court packing scheme would be, well, the court doesn't have much power anyway. And, you know, we don't even have lower courts. Uh, you know, it's, it's it, most cases were supposed to go through the state courts. And
1: I think that's what they would say. Well, look, I'm all for state courts having having more power, but um, look, I think the the whole purpose teleologically of the Constitution is to live limit the government's authority, um, especially to limit the government's authority, to trample on enumerated rights, rights enumerated in the Bill of Rights. And as we can see in the Ninth Amendment, you know, the framers were, of course, concerned that the Constitution would be understood as waiving all the rights that weren't enumerated in the Constitution. So so the if the whole function of the Constitution, is to limit the government's power and that's how we read the constitution then i think we ought to favor the ability of any independent judiciary to restrain the government from trampling on express the enumerated rights and you know we i suppose we could go through founders individually but the, the fact is that what we ended up with is an article 3 that says the court can decide cases arising under this constitution if, if the government's trying to criminalize my speech and I sue them and try to get an injunction, I just can't think of any possible reading under Article 3 where that would not be a case arising under the Constitution. So whatever, you know, Alexander Hamilton, for example, may have thought, what we ended up with, I think, is a, a document, the most you know commonsensical and, and historical reading of it uh, being that the Supreme Court does have the power to invalidate unconstitutional laws. and I think, Thank God that that is the way things have turned out. Or I think right now, already, it's a historical fact. We would have no enforceable Second Amendment rights in courts, and we would have no enforceable free exercise rights for churches and religious organizations to manage their own internal affairs. Both of those things would have disappeared, um, you know, had the Heller case been decided differently and then the Hosanna-Tabor case. Yeah, I, I
0: have two no quick
2: questions. Let me, just, let me just follow up one thing here before you get to yours, Elliot what what provision of the Constitution either authorizes or prohibits Congress from
1: packing the Supreme Court? Right. So packing the court would be expanding the court for the purposes of taking political control of it. So these, the structure of the Constitution, as I said, has three articles, each of which establishes an independent branch of government. So if you were to allow the first two branches to simply reconstitute the third at at any time in in order to dictate that it get a different result politically out of that branch, functionally, we would have two branches of government, which, I mean, you yourself indicated you thought the founders basically wanted a a two-branch system of government. Um, that, That would be the result if whenever they were displeased with what the court was doing. The president and Congress, the majority party, could just say, well, we're just going to double the size of this thing. And now you can't check our power. Um, in that case, it doesn't make any sense structurally to have Articles one, two, and three each setting out different enumerated, different branches of government with different enumerated powers. Really, the third branch is just an, an illusion if it can be reconstituted at any time, it's subjected utterly to the whims of the, the first two branches of government. And, and another argument I would make is that when the states signed on to the constitution, you know J- Madison in, in his report of 1800 says that all the powers the federal government has are from the constitution. The constitution is a compact to which the states are parties. So that the, the state, states signing onto this thing are the whole reason it has any legitimacy And when the states signed on to it, they were promised a a tripartite system of government and they were promised specific enumerated rights that would be enforceable in some way against the federal government. Um, Who who would have standing to challenge a court packing scheme, a state, a state? I think a state absolutely would, because the states uh, signed on to the Constitution. They created the federal government and the argument uh, would be. When we signed on to this thing, we signed on to a tripartite system of government, not a binary system of government. We signed on to an independent judiciary that could enforce uh, our rights as states and the rights of our people against the federal government. And you've now gone back on that promise. And so the states could ask the Supreme Court for an injunction to prevent court packing. I like
2: that argument, but isn't that the same argument that the Supreme Court rejected when Texas sued Pennsylvania over the over the two thousand twenty election,
0: kind of
1: no, no, I don't think so because uh, in that case, the Supreme Court said that Texas didn't have standing to challenge Pennsylvania's procedures in Pennsylvania. Um, no, they ra- it was but they did because it affected the, the president, right? But Texas, well, look, implicit that
0: same contract
2: argument was was raised in that case.
1: Well, I, mean, this, I thought it was a great argument, but it, the court said no standing. This the Supreme Court didn't. Um, oh, this is a good opportunity for me to defend John Roberts, actually. So let me do that in a minute. But but let me quickly say the Supreme Court didn't reject the contract argument. They didn't say no. This the con the Constitution isn't compact, and and that's why we're dismissing your suit. They said you're challenging something happening in Pennsylvania. Um, pencil only the Pennsylvania legislature. Implicit in the court's decision was that. Pennsylvania could have uh, brought this lawsuit to to challenge the election. Um, Now, now look, here's here's why even just politically what the U.S. Supreme Court did made made sense. If you look at the decision, let's say that Texas had won, right? Texas had won, and the U.S. Supreme Court kicks the decision to the Pennsylvania legislature and said, Pennsylvania legislature, you decide what electors you're sending. Um, It's up to you. Now, we know exactly what the Pennsylvania legislature would have done because the Pennsylvania legislature didn't sue. They didn't sue to be able to do this. They were virtue signaling about how you know wonderful we are and how we uphold the democratic process. And we're not doing any of this edgy, radical stuff that Texas is doing. So I'm sure they would have said, well, we're going to send. The uh, electors that we would have sent anyway, um, to you know, to show the nation that we're legitimate, we support the democratic process, and and so forth. So the same result would have obtained uh, anyway politically. And then you know what would have happened after that? The Biden would have entered office with an ironclad excuse to pack the U.S. Supreme Court because they he would be able to say, "Hey, the U.S. Supreme Court just tried to overturn the legitimate." you know democratic results of this election by kicking this to the Pennsylvania legislature. So it would have it would have not changed the outcome of the election regardless of what what anyone thinks about the legitimacy of certain electoral, you know, procedures and changes. It wouldn't have changed the outcome if Texas had won and kicked it to Pennsylvania and it would have just hastened uh court packing and given the left an excuse to do that right away. So even politically, you know, it, it just wouldn't have made sense. Yeah, those are
0: excellent points. That being said, on the flip side, would be it would force the Pennsylvania legislature to legislate as legislators and either pass a bill um, expanding the voting laws or not. But don't let the secretary, the secretary of state, or whoever did that emergency crap. Don't let him change the laws on a whim right before the election. It would force the legislature to do their job, which is to legislate. So that's the the flip side of it. Well, so if Texas had won, now it's been a while since I've read the material in this litigation, but my
1: recollection is if Texas had won, the result would have been the U.S. Supreme Court would have found these changes were illegitimate Mm -hmm. and illegal. And so therefore, the solution to that requested by Texas is that the state legislature of Pennsylvania will decide what electors it's going to send. That's my recollection of the case. So they wouldn't have had to pass new Election procedures on the spot. What they would have had to do on the spot is decide what electors to send. But we know what electors they would have sent because the Pennsylvania legislature didn't sue. So they would have said, Our people chose Joe Biden. We are honoring our people. Probably. Yeah. Joe Biden. Well, But I think we can say definitely because otherwise they would have sued if they wanted wanted to. You know, they have no backbone. Legislators don't have backbones. So exactly. Exactly. So they would have done the same thing. But, you know, this is all tied in with the standing issue, because I actually think this helps on this helps to illustrate why Texas actually, I think, frankly, didn't have standing because the decision maker here was Pennsylvania. Um, Now, you conversely, when we're looking at the the compact argument I raised, The the states decided to sign on to this compact, and if the federal government is now going to unilaterally impose upon the states a totally new creature, a binary system of government with no enforceable enumerated rights, that's fundamentally contrary to what the states themselves decided to do, and it's going to impede every single state's decision to continue to you know try to honor and safeguard these rights that they were promised when they signed on to the Constitution, so I, I think there's a significant qualitative difference, and I don't think the court rejected the the Madison uh, compact
0: argument in the. I have a hard I have a hard time agreeing with, when people say. Texas has no standing because the federal government doesn't affect them. The president affects everyone, including everyone in Texas. They, they are affected by it.
1: No, I, I do think they're they're affected. Um, the, you know, the court, there's a long history, though, of the court saying that just because you are affected by something, that's not sufficient to confer uh, standing. We see that in environmental cases, for example, where the court doesn't dispute that, yes, everyone's affected by the environment, but that doesn't necessarily give you standing. And, you know, I, I think it just... Uh, Here, let me put it this way. A sufficient, uh, a critical, um, not a sufficient, but a critical element of standing is redressability. That is, if we let you bring this case, will it actually redress the injury that you are suing over? And I just explained why there was no redressability in the Texas case.
0: Practically speaking, politically, yes.
1: Right. And because of the fact that Pennsylvania did not sue. And so... um, Get it would have been
0: nice.
2: If, I'm sorry, but it would have been nice if the Supreme court had actually written an opinion that said that, I mean, they basically wrote, as I recall, it was like two or three sentences saying no standing. See you later.
1: You're, you're correct. Yeah. Right. And, and of course, I think you and I would probably agree about the reason for that, which is the court wanted to, you know, come off as a political and, uh, you know, convey the impression that it's a legitimate non-political institution. Um, You know, but I think there are important reasons for that. I don't think that's entirely wrongheaded. Uh, You know, regardless of what one thinks about the outcome in the Casey decision, um, I think that there's a lot of language that's correct and is thought provoking and, and, you know, worth contemplating in the Casey decision where the U.S. Supreme Court said, you know, look, in order for us to have enforceable constitutional rights where the majority doesn't always prevail, Sometimes the minority is going to prevail and these majority actions are just going to be struck down. That requires an independent judiciary. In order for us to continue to have an independent judiciary, there needs to be a certain threshold of the population that respects the legitimacy and political independence of that judiciary. And if that threshold if that number falls below a certain threshold, if everyone just believes the court is just a purely partisan institution where it's just a matter of loading it up with justices that have the right letter next to their names. At that point, people are just going to abolish this independent judiciary thing, and we won't have the power to protect anyone's rights. So Let me
2: just stop you right there. I mean, how many people today don't think of the the court as apolitical and nonpartisan? I think everybody on both sides of the aisle thinks that the court is highly partisan for the other side. I don't think that there's anybody who thinks the court is apolitical.
1: Well, look, look at the, look at Chief Justice's Chief Justice John Roberts approval numbers. He's he's got a, a majority of independents, Democrats, and Republicans. Uh, just trust Chief Justice John Roberts as you know someone who's honest and a man of integrity and so forth. The, the fact is that even like if you meet those people. Well, they're they're not they're not the kind of people who have the, these kinds of discussions, right? And come on, come on, podcasts like this, because you know we're all hyper political people. I'm I'm a hyper political person. It's my job, um, and you know the circles that you we all travel in are are hyper political. But you know, there's a lot of people out there that don't care about politics uh, to the the degree that any of us do. And uh, I think that John Roberts actually has succeeded in you know, creating a, a nonpartisan, legitimate, independent image for the court to a significant extent, while still managing to a lot of the time, not as often as I would like, but a lot of the time protect certain fundamental constitutional rights. And I think that's important. So that's, that's part of why I, uh, I'm, I can't say this, the president of the small John Roberts fan club anymore, but I, I'm the self-appointed president of the, of the fan club.
0: Yeah, so we're actually coming up on on a full hour. It flew by. It was awesome. Wow, anyway, that did fly by. Massive important issue that you didn't get a chance to mention that you want to wanted to mention real quick before we before we end. Oh gosh, uh, I mean,
1: we we really kind of covered all the basics. Um, you know, you and I talked about earlier this idea that uh, that we've heard in New Hampshire recently that the states are limited to the powers enumerated in the federal constitution, but. I feel like we already kind of indirectly kind of talked about why that's bogus and it's the other way around. So I I think we really kind of covered all the bases. Um, You know, what I would just say about the commission on the court that we didn't have a chance to talk about is all of the administrative changes that have happened to the size of the court, none of them have ever given the party at the time making the change political control of the court. Either the party already had political control of the court when they made the administrative change, or the party, despite changing the size of the court, failed to attain political control of the court. So uh, a famous example of this is um, the Seventh Circuit Act in 1807, um, when Thomas Jefferson was president, the Democratic Republicans had a majority. They added another circuit court of appeals, and they created an additional seat And so advocates of court packing say, oh, well, look, its there's a, yes, it's because the nation was expanding and they created an an additional circuit, but there were political considerations were part of a mix of factors because, of course, the Democratic Republicans trusted President Jefferson to appoint a Democratic Republican justice. Um, But the fact is that that did not give the Democratic Republicans control of the court. The Federalists still continued to control the court for years And in fact, the McCullough decision was one of the most Federalist decisions ever, uh, talking capital F Federalist here, Federalist Party, Alexander Hamilton Federalist. That was decided in 1819. So long after the Democratic Republicans created this Seventh Circuit uh, in 1807, still you had this hyper-Federalist, in effect, Supreme Court. And McCullough, what it did is it upheld the Second Bank of the United States, And if anyone knows anything about the early debates between the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans or the Anti-Federalists, you know that Federalists loved the Bank of the United States and the Democratic Republicans thought this was a horrible institution of aristocratic privilege and corrupt moneyed interests. And it was just the worst thing in the world. And it was upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1819, long after Democratic Republicans created the Seventh Circuit and the Seventh Seat. So there just is no precedent for expanding the court to take political control of it. Um, And once you ring that bell, you can't unring it because anytime the court sits down to make a decision, present in their minds will be the fear. If we don't do what the elected branches bid us do in this case, they will just increase the size of the court again. So in effect, we will go from having three branches to two, and that will mean we have no independent judiciary and no enumerated
0: federal constitutional rights. That's an excellent point. Thank you very much. If, if there are no further questions, um, where have can people more, find out more about more you and Cornerstone?
2: Oh, sorry, Ed. Oh, I had one more question. Please. You wanted to defend John Roberts. I want to know if you can defend King versus Burwell in 30 seconds. You know, I'm not familiar with,
1: with King and Well, That's the second uh,
2: Obamacare decision where they rewrote the statute in order to allow okay. uh, federal gotcha. change.
1: I'm, I'm familiar with Sibelius. I don't know if, if that's something you have any interest in talking about. I'm sure you've heard the standard defenses of John Roberts in that case, which is that John Roberts was trying to limit the Commerce Clause power and, and you know, got the majority to sign on to a decision limiting the Commerce Clause power, which I think was good. Um, you know, I'm sure we all know And You don't even need to be a lawyer. Any libertarians know how the commerce clause has been abused and been used to authorize all sorts of crazy things and needs to be reined in. Um, so I think it was a breath of fresh air in Sibelius to finally have a decision limiting the commerce clause power, but, um, I'm not familiar with that other ACA decision, but look, I, I do disagree with John Roberts, you know, fairly regularly. Uh, you know, I, I don't, subscribe to what he does 100% of the time. But I, I do think he's one of the better chief justices uh, we have historically. And, and let me put it this way, if I could encapsulate my general defense of John Roberts, this is a falsifiable prediction, I could be proven wrong. Um, I think a lot of John Roberts's actions over the past 10 years or so have been motivated by his fear of court packing I think he realizes how horrible it would be, how it would create a totalitarian federal government. It would be an abolition of the Constitution. And so for that reason, my prediction is that if we do see an attempt at court packing and we see states bring the kind of lawsuit that I described, I think that John Roberts will sign on to an opinion granting an injunction to prohibit court packing. I could be wrong. I hope I'm not. But I I think that's what makes the most sense of, of John Roberts's motives. And that, that's my, my educated guess, having listened to him in oral arguments and read his opinions for a long time.
2: As the blind men say, we shall see.
0: We shall see. Also, <laughs> and, and what was the website for Cornerstone again? And how can people find out more about you if they're just a fan of Ian Hewitt? nhcornerstone.org. And
1: I also have uh, ianhewitt.com, which has links to, um, it's got links to some websites that I've contributed some some popular level stuff too you can follow the link to the American mind and see my my long analysis of the commission on the court report uh, and it's got links to my law review articles as well which are more more scholarly articles for for lawyers but um, I've got uh, just a, a few days ago i had a, a book review of a book David French wrote in 2020 um, America's secession threat uh, you can follow the link uh, to American reformer to go read that that's
0: up as well yeah, I'm actually going to read that. Okay, thank you so much. You have to come back on soon. It was a great pleasure. Thank you very much for all your time.
1: Likewise, Alu. Uh, Ed, happy to debate any time. Thank you so much. Stephen, it was I nice to meet we you. I didn't we
0: were debating that much. It was a pleasure
2: talking with you, though. It was good talking to you.